Thanks for downloading and welcome back to the Weekly Curio, Curiosities for the Curious. My name's Tom Britton. I'm the writer, creator, blah, 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 freak show and tell, a stage show here in Chicago. And I'm Jeff Wagg, curator of the College of Curiosity. How are you today, Tom? Doing great, buddy. This week we've got some interesting stories. The Titanic pops up every few years in Curious News. We've actually got listener mail, I can't believe it, of our three <laughs> listeners. One of them wrote us a note. Uh, I'll tell you about the other Thomas Britton and the real man behind Ripley's Believe It or Not. But as always, our 25-year tradition, Jeff starts with a puzzle. So here is this week's puzzle. It's a very easy one, but we'll start there. A man pushed his car through the streets of Atlantic City. After a couple of blocks, he stopped at a hotel and discovered he was bankrupt. What happened? Our first listener Letter, I'll call it a listener letter. Yeah. I went to the old mailbag. <laughs> Sam, the mailman, came by the studio and he dropped off a little letter from Kitty in New Hampshire. She says, and I quote, My grandfather would, for fun, try to cut the head off the chicken so it would run around for a bit for our amusement. Yes, if we needed a chicken, he would buy one from the neighbor and he would behead it. He had a device that held the head. We thought it was hysterical. It would bleed out quickly. This may explain a few things. Life on the farm. Yes, absolutely, <laughs> up in New Hampshire. And this, of course, alludes back to our Mike the Headless Chicken segment from last week. So if you haven't listened to last week's, you will understand more if you do. And if, if you're of a delicate sensibility, I should mention, cutting the head off the chicken in a manner for it to run around is no more cruel than cutting off the head of a chicken in a manner in which it doesn't run around. These are nerve endings firing off, not a beast suffering. Yeah. Thanks for the letter, Kitty. We look forward to more from our other 7 to 10 listeners. <laughs> and this brings us to our first curiosity of the week. Jeff, you'd mentioned the Titanic seems to pop up amongst the curious every, what, three, four months? At least that. We have two stories this week. Uh, the first goes back to another story. Uh, everyone may remember the movie Anastasia, where there is a girl of Russian nobility. Her family is killed as the communist revolution happens. But there is this little girl who claims to be her and somehow has survived the massacre. And this is a real life story. There actually was a lady who claimed this and um, way into her old age. And finally, through DNA testing, they have shown that she actually isn't related to that family. And now we have the same story playing out on the Titanic. Turns out there was a first-class passenger by the name of Lorraine Allison. Lorraine Allison was a two-year-old child. And during the confusion, um, her little brother, or actually her older brother, was rescued by a nanny. But her parents didn't know this. So they spent the entire time the ship was sinking looking for the little brother and because of that, none of them got on a lifeboat. Now, they were first-class passengers. They had the first access to lifeboats, but they were too busy looking for the little kid. So they perished with the ship, or that's what we thought. There is a woman, or who has now passed away, who claimed to be this child. She was raised up in Minnesota by a Mr. Hyde, who apparently rescued her from the ship. And he claimed to actually be the designer of the Titanic, who was also thought to have perished, but somehow he miraculously survived. And this all has exploded on internet forums, and people are going crazy about this. Well, guess what? We live in the modern age, and we can do DNA testing. And they have tested the DNA of this person, who has now passed away. And as you might suspect, the DNA is not a match. However, her daughter is still out there claiming that it's true. And there's going to be a book about this. And, you know, this long-lost survivor 
will, you know, be considered a real person. At least that's the hope of the daughter. Now, first-class passenger on the Titanic, that should tell you something about this story. The Allison family is very, very wealthy, and that just might be a motivation because if this, even the, the daughter of the woman claiming to be the lost child could prove her lineage, she might stand to inherit quite a bit of money. So that is the first Titanic story, uh, and you can, you can Google on that all you'd like. Just Google Lorraine Allison, you can find out the entire story. But that may not be the craziest Titanic story. I like we should rank them. The top 10 craziest Titanic stories this month. Well, you know, actually, there are many. I mean, uh, people don't realize this, but there have been many times that uh, people have tried to capitalize on the Titanic thing. As soon as the movie came out, people went crazy, not only in the U.S. Uh, For a while, they were talking about building a Titanic casino in Vegas. Back in the day when every Vegas casino had a show out front, remember the good old days of Treasure Island and the pirate ship sinking and Mirage has the volcano? Well, there would be the Titanic right on the strip, and every night, of course, it would sink. So imagine this, a cruise liner sinking on the Las Vegas strip every single night. Of course, this did not happen, but that's okay. It is now 2014, and we have two new plans to reconstruct the Titanic. The first of these these I don't even know what to call them, replicas of the Titanic, is is actually going to be an amusement park. It's called the Romandisi, that's a D, Romandisi Seven Seas International Cultural Tourism Resort, which unsurprisingly would be found in China. It turns out that the Chinese are obsessed with Titanic ever since the movie came out. So imagine this, right on the river, there would be a full-size Titanic, and you could stay in it as a hotel. Uh, It'll be attached to an amusement park, but it will also be a ride. And it will be a, this is quoting here, a 6D theater. Now, I can come up with three dimensions pretty easily. A fourth dimension, not too hard. Six dimensions, I'm not quite sure what they mean. Uh, We could say time was the fourth and smell was the fifth. I don't know what the sixth is. But they describe it as, uh, (laughs) they describe it as, you will want to escape from the rising waters. Which is also your damned hotel room. Well, I, I, I want we to know. <laughs> escape from the hotel room I've paid a lot of money to stay in. Oh, the fear you're going to have. I could go to La Quinta if I want to be scared all night in a hotel room. <laughs> That's absolutely true. I don't, I don't know what they're doing. There, there's very little description of what the ride would be. Uh, and I don't know that that would be fun. Here, here's a quote. Now, this is a translation, of course, from, from the CEO of the project. He says, you will have the feeling... The water will drown me. I must escape with my life. Bring That's the a, kids. Yeah, bring, bring the, the kids. kids. Come on out. Yeah. Titanic. <laughs> you know, you can smother them with pillows if you don't want them to suffer from the icy cold waters rising above their beds. I, there is a brilliance, though, to naming a project the Titanic, because if it fails, there's no way an investor <laughs> can win in court. That's right. What did you expect? We told you what we were doing. Titanic Enterprises went under? <laughs> Amazing. Explain that to the judge. <laughs> So, so yeah, so, you know, that's, that's being built now, supposedly, and you can head over to China to see that. But, hey, you know, why settle for a fabrication? Why not actually build another ship called Titanic, exactly the same size, with the same features as the existing Titanic, and then sail it? Crazy, you say? Not too crazy for mining billionaire Clive Palmer of Australia. He has actually 
designed and is seeking a contract to build a ship that is a replica of the Titanic. Now, it's not a complete replica because once the Titanic sank, standards were put into place that say things like you need to have enough lifeboats for everyone on board and things like that. So this would be an updated modern version of the Titanic. And if you were worried about this thing sinking, he says, well, any ship with a hole in it will sink, but this will be the safest ship afloat. Which is exactly what they said the first time. Pretty much. They built the Titanic. Yeah, he he didn't want to use the unsinkable word, but, you know, anyway. He's... Can you get there by Hindenburg? Is there a chance <laughs> to, like, string this all together? Can I go in a Donner party to the Hindenburg where I'm then taken to the Titanic? It's it's a whole tour. It, absolutely. It's a whole so package. My research showed two things. One was that it was being built in China. Another, that it was being built in Finland. I don't actually know which is true. Um, I did check, and it said the keel was supposed to be laid down March 2016. What's the keel? The keel is the first piece of the ship they lay down. This is like the bottom of the ship, and that's the very first oh, thing so they Oh, so they're breaking ground in, in exactly. parlance. So they haven't even broke ground on this, really. Right, no. Okay. And, you know, so when they a keel laying, there's a ceremony that's like, you know, hey, we're really doing this. That hasn't happened yet. It's supposed to happen in March. However... First sailing supposed to happen in 2016, and they've already got thousands of people signed up. One guy has paid a million dollars to sail on the inaugural voyage, which, of course, will be sailing from Southampton. Well, they say New York. The original I'm so Titanic glad that didn't fool get and there. His money were parted. I yeah. Really... So um, anyway, this this guy he's not done here. Apparently, he's trying to recreate all the big blockbuster movies of the 90s because his side project is to create a real Jurassic Park. So what doesn't make sense to me is that the Titanic, for its day, was an opulent liner and it was a large whatever. But then the next year, there was an equally opulent liner and five years later. So I'm I'm okay with recreating something if it was really good. (laughs) Right. Well, in this case, it was at its time fine. And then five years later, (laughs) they had another number one liner. So I think this guy would be best served just making a new... Top of the line, state of the art, absolutely opulent, beautiful liner, and calling it the Titanic right. or the Atlantis or anything else that sank. Well, that's the you know it's an interesting thing about the Titanic. It's that happened in 1912. It's 2014, and we are still obsessed with it. Now the movie helped, but it was this isn't entirely the movie. People are obsessed with this one ship sinking, and guess what, folks? This has happened a lot. Google Empress of Ireland or Lusitania. Um, you know, everyone in my generation, I'm an old guy, knew what the Lusitania was. I don't know that it is in the public consciousness the same way. So, so yeah, um, this guy's rebuilding the Titanic. Titanic had three sister ships, the, uh, the Britannic, the Olympic, and the Gigantic, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> That's none, awful. None of them actually fared very well either. Um, it was a, a poor design. Um, oh, one, one small note. He claims that unlike the original, this one will be made of steel, not wood. Well, the, the original was made out of steel. That's why that happened. It was bad steel. So I, if he thinks it was made out of wood, I'm a, I'm a little confused. Anyway, the Titanic is still with us. It may have sunk over 102 years ago, but, you know, it's still here. Do you love Ripley's Believe It or Not? Robert Ripley... Turns out not the main guy. No, not really. He certainly created it, and he was the cartoonist while he was alive. 
but he didn't actually do the research. You know, we have this image of Robert Ripley in his pith helmet traveling across the world looking for curiosities. And he, he cultivated that image. Oh, absolutely. He was in his pith helmet and he did travel a bit and he did make much hay about it on the radio and yes. said talking about his travels. Oh, he did all kinds of crazy firsts like broadcasting from an airplane and all that kind of stuff. I mean, he was a showman. The man was a showman. He didn't, he was an unintentional showman. He started off as a sports writer and then one day wrote a piece about weird things that have happened in sports. Uh, and no, this is back in the day when sports were, he was the cartoonist for the sports. He would like draw one scene from the boxing match he'd seen. And he found out that that odd sports moment was the most popular thing he'd ever done. And so he just kind of went in that direction. And then, you know, a few years later, 80 million people are reading his syndicated cartoon about Believe It or Not. 80 million people in our, our country is a few hundred million. I mean, that's almost yeah. everyone, half It was like half the, the population, uh, and they're reading it in newspapers. This isn't like the internet where, you know, you pop open your RSS reader and there's the cartoon. No, this people paid for this every day. And that was only two or three newspapers per town, but that was it. You would read right. the paper. My grandfather would read the paper twice. Yeah. The Sunday edition, <laughs> he'd go through it a couple of times. Because he was digesting this information. So you yeah. had real stickiness there. 80 million. Yeah. It's, you know, it's amazing. And then it, w- it went into the radio and TV. And, you know, there was even a TV show in the 90s with uh, Dean Kane, I think it Loved was. Loved that show. But uh, so, you know, as a curious person, of course I love Ripley's Believe It or Not. I grew up with the books and I was amazed at the stuff in there. And now that I'm an adult, I realize that some of the stuff's probably a little embellished. But. Ripley always claimed that he could prove it was true. This was a big claim of his, a very important claim. Believe it or not, it's true. The reason he could claim that is because he had a man doing all the work for him. This man's name was Norbert Pearlroth. So, Pearlroth's, believe it or not, did yeah. not catch on. <laughs> Pearlroth did not have the Robert Ripley rolling off the tongue for it. Uh, so Pearlroth was introduced to Ripley when Ripley put out an ad saying that he was looking for a polyglot. Now, a polyglot is simply someone who speaks many languages, uh, more than more than one, basically. And uh, Pearl Roth... I'm a monoglot. I am, I am a monoglot. Yeah, I, <laughs> I am a sad monoglot. I, I feel ridiculous every time I'm in Chicago and realize that everyone around me speaks at least two languages. But I would feel especially ridiculous around Norbert. He spoke 11 languages. This, of course, interested uh, Ripley because... The more languages the man speaks, the more places he can look for strange and curious things to report about. And that's exactly what this guy did. He was hired by Ripley as a freelancer, and every week he had to deliver 24 different curious items to Ripley. And uh, now, I am a person who has to deliver curious items. It is what I do. And coming up with 24 good ones a week would be a challenge to me. And I'm talking about someone who was sitting at a desk with Google and Wikipedia and, you know... And Ripley's Believe It or Not. And Ripley's Believe It or Not. <laughs> this guy had none of that. The only advantage... He, well, he had two advantages. One was he spoke 11 languages, which meant every book written pretty much he could read. The other was is that he lived in New York. So every morning, he would take the train into New York from Brooklyn and go to the library, New York Public Library of Ghostbusters fame. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's how I know all the libraries of the world. <laughs> What sci-fi movie was that librarian? There you go. And uh, he'd spend all, he would spend all day there reading through books. It's estimated he read 300,000 books in his lifetime. But essentially, this man was Ripley's Believe It or Not. Ripley drew the cartoons. 
or at least some of them. Um, Ripley may have been involved in choosing which things were promoted out there. But if you think about it, Ripley was on the road a lot. He, he was traveling. He couldn't possibly have run the business on a day-to-day basis. So essentially, there was a management company and this guy, Norbert Perlroth, creating all these amazing things. Now, Norbert was younger than Ripley. Uh, Ripley died, you know, well, geez, 60, 60 years ago. Norbert only died about 30 years ago. So for 30 years after, um, he kept doing Ripley's Believe It or Not. It was bought by King's Feature Syndicate, a big, huge syndication company. And they hired, uh, well, actually, this is the interesting thing. They didn't hire Norbert. They kept him on the freelancing contract. So now imagine this. This guy does his week work every week, turns in the articles, and then he gets his paycheck. So he, this is, we're talking about a salary here. His work is seen by 80 million people every day. Not that doesn't count TV shows, doesn't count the books. There are, how many Ripley books are there? Dozens and dozens. And he never got a cent for any of that. No royalties, no pension. He just got his weekly check, whatever the heck that was. Now, Robert Ripley knew how important this guy was, so he did leave him in his will $5,000, which a nice gesture and at the time was more money than it seems now. But this, but Ripley essentially owed everything to this one guy. So I feel a little bad for Norbert. His name was never mentioned in anything Ripley ever d- did, except for the 50th anniversary edition of Ripley's Believe It or Not that has him listed as research director. So now you guys know the name Norbert Proroth. Please remember it. He is the father of curiosity in the 20th century. I was born Thomas Britton Jr., so I knew there was another out there, <laughs> but I did not know I was the first. I was not the first Thomas Britton to seek his fame and fortune in this business we call show. Uh-huh. There was in the 16 and 1700s another. Uh, by 1714, he had passed on, though he was 70 years old. This Thomas Britton, remarkable, remarkable fellow. He did a few things that were remarkable. One of which is hard for us to understand in this modern era, and particularly if you're an American. He crossed class barriers Hmm. in a time when that just was not done. So by the time he does this, we're in the early to teens of the 1700s. He is a coal merchant, as was his father before him. So a working man, although not, not, you know, like being a master plumber, a respected, like chef, a respected business, but a a working business. He sold sold what was called small coal. Now we call charcoal. Ah. So he had gone into a specific category of his father's business. And he did as well as you could do. He franchised, for lack of a better term, as many neighborhoods as you could, lacking modern communication devices. Only so big you can go without the government calling you the East India Company. So he is making as much money as you can make in that industry. He buys a nice flat, but not above his station. And this seems to have been his key. He didn't seem to act above his station, which would make the betters upset with him. As though he were aspiring to be them. He always seems to have known his place and then just sort of ignored it. He was said to be possessed of a fine singing voice, and and there is a difference in the two of us right there. Uh, (laughs) And he would give concerts, and that was the secret. I think the arts tend to break barriers better than anything else. We see that certainly with race. We see that certainly with uh, uh, civil rights in the homosexual Mm -hmm. arena. And we see it with Thomas Britton. He opened a small theater, very small. In fact, the organ he had installed only had five stops. But because of that, it changes the mathematics, and so composers like Hayden were interesting in, interested in playing with this unusual 
instrument in the corner because the five stops changes something on the harmonics or what have you, <laughs> and it lets them write in a more challenging way. Thomas Britton also played a few instruments. I haven't bothered to memorize them because they don't exist anymore. <laughs> like one of them was called the viol. It's a violin, viola, cello variant. He played a, a very strange organ harpsichord mix <laughs> where it would pluck the string, but there were also pipes involved and oh, stops wow. and such. He played about six of these and sang. Hayden composed in his living room, but Thomas Britton didn't start stop there. He also, with a friend of his, a German, built a laboratory. They were interested in chemistry, sort of an alchemical chemistry. It still had a bit of religion in it. Mm. At that time, I forget the name of it, but it's a chemistry variant. And they would go around demonstrating slash proselytizing <laughs> about this science. But there is the beginning of science there, which follows from music, logically. He never gave up his small coal business, though. <laughs> Another key, I think, to maintaining his yeah. identity. Mm -hmm. And maybe he just liked doing it and never didn't make money, apparently. His small theater, hidden, the staircase was hidden. It wasn't in a terribly great area. He charged three shillings a year, which is an interesting business model. It is. As a customer, like like a like a gym. Yeah. You pay and you can show up for shows or concerts more often than anything else. Despite these limitations of being an unimportant fella, of charging, a, even for then, three shillings was cheap, and being kind of hidden and hard to get to, kind of a small place, full, sold out, packed, <laughs> every week, every night, every month, whenever he would do shows. Uh, Thomas Britton... A remarkable man with a remarkable life. What I found him is he had a remarkable death. For lack of a better phrase, what I do is find the intersection between history and variety arts. And I go there. Thomas Britton was an extremely religious person and an extremely superstitious person. And his friend, an important sort of barrister or alderman type we would have now, decided to play a prank on him. Ventriloquists didn't use figures back then. Dummies. They didn't use those. Picture a guy standing on stage doing ventriloquism means belly speak or belly talk mm -hmm. in, in the Latin. So they would throw their voice. When the microphone gets invented, that art form goes away. Because <laughs> yeah. now I can throw, I'm throwing my voice right now into your iPod. <laughs> right. It's a miracle. Burn the witch. <laughs> Through time. <laughs> I would have a chimney on stage as my set. And there's a guy trapped in the chimney. And I do my bit. Or in a box. Or under your seat. So he follows Thomas Britton home. And from every nook and cranny comes phrases like, Go home, repent of thy sins, your time is nigh. Over and over, it scares him to death. In the morning, he is dead. Oh. He is, as far as I know, the first person murdered by ventriloquists. <laughs> and this explains my lifelong <laughs> quest to eradicate ventriloquism from this planet Earth. <laughs> There is a place where dead dummies go, dead ventriloquist dummies. It's called Vent Haven. Uh, I just watched a documentary on, on uh, Her Master's Voice. Yes, yes. Uh, just looks like the creepiest place ever. Now, I grew up with the, the, remember Magic, the movie Magic with Anthony Hopkins? Yes. Where he was being controlled by the dummy. And uh, so you know, that was my introduction to ventriloquism is that, Dummies are evil, and they want to kill you. And now you've just proven that true. But Tales from the Crypt had Bobcat Goldthwait and Don mm -hmm. Rickles. That's right. In a, yeah. a, a very good, if you can find it on YouTube, it's a very entertaining episode because it isn't entirely. It, Tales from the Crypt had this weird sort of intentional B-movie, a, a lot of humor to it, and very funny, and at times very creepy. But the Don Rickles, Bobcat Goldthwait episode, whatever it's called, with the ventriloquism is absolutely fantastic is. just for that reason. But they, these things are creepy. There's something very 
creepy about them. And anyway, if you if you want to see them all, head go to Google Vent Haven, and you will find out that there is a building dedicated to these things. And now story time with Jeff Wack. <laughs> it's story time. So I took a bunch of people over to the Holy Lands. I didn't actually call it the Holy Lands. I said, hey, let's go check out the Mediterranean area. And we went to Israel and Greece and Turkey, all wonderful places. I have stories about all of them, but I just want to tell you one story about some time in Israel. So um, I knew this guy. His name was Eitan, and he took us on a custom tour, and he insisted that after we went to Matsada, which is this whole other story, we had to go to the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is one of the best-named things ever. Uh, it is a sea. Well, it's actually kind of a lake. Uh, certainly nothing compared to Lake Michigan, which is not too far from us here. Uh, but it is certainly dead. This thing is dead. There no fish, no insects. It is just this massive... Well, not that massive. It's this body of... Well, let me tell you what happens. So you go, you go there, and you're in Israel, and uh, they have a beachfront, and there are spas and hotels, and then there's the beach. When you get on the beach, you notice the sand is a little different. It isn't sandy. It's kind of crusty. But there are people laying out on it, and you're like, okay, whatever. I'm in Israel. This is how they do things here. And then you see people in the water, but they look a little funny. They're, they're just floating on their backs like they all are floating around on mats. They don't have any mats. Uh, so, hey, what's going on? Let's figure it out. So we walk into the water, and there's a bunch of us. There's like 30 of us. And we're walking in, you know, sticking a toe in the water, being very careful. And then we notice that when we get up to our knees, half of us fall over. It's very, very difficult to stand in the Dead Sea because there's so much salt dissolved in it that you float in a way you've never floated before. So eventually you go in and you take the plunge. Now you have to be very careful. This water is, is not pleasant. Um, if you have shaved that day, you will know it because every part of your body that you have shaved will sting terribly. It's part of the experience. And then you have to lay on your back because you don't have a choice. You will whether you want to or not. And then you, you, it's like you're floating on a raft. And the gimmick that people do is they'll bring books with them out there and lay in their back and read the book, which requires no effort at all. None. It's a crazy, crazy thing. If you're ever in Israel, you have to try this. Uh, I won't say it's an altogether pleasant thing. When I came out of the lake, I felt oily. And they have showers there so you can wash this stuff off. But they also will sell that residue for incredible amounts of money. And every shop in the area has these little vials of Dead Sea salts that have all these miraculous powers, or so they say. Do we know why Why aren't there Dead Seas, 50 of them in the world? There are. are there? Oh, okay. there are. Sure. The Great Salt Lake is another example of a Dead Sea. Now, the great, is that Utah? Where is that? In Utah. Okay. Great Salt Lake. Salt Lake City. Why isn't this famous? I've heard of the Dead <laughs> yeah. Sea. I knew the shtick with the book. <laughs> Why? Why is there no Salt Lake shtick version? Oh, that's the Mormon version. I thought they call it a shtick, but whatever the more whatever the Mormon <laughs> word is for shtick. Now the Great Salt Lake is a little different. Uh, I used to live in Utah, so I was able to compare the two. Uh, the Dead Sea is significantly saltier. Now, the Great Salt Lake is ten times saltier than the ocean. The Dead Sea is like twenty times saltier. So there's a big. So difference. you can't float as. You effortlessly? Can. Not in the you you can't float as effortlessly in the Great Salt Lake. And they actually don't have beaches. Uh, there used to be this place called the Salt Air that is uh it's featured prominently in an old freaky movie called Carnival of Souls. If you've ever seen this old movie, that's the old Salt Air. And then, and that used to be the beach resort, but 
the Great Salt Lake smells really bad. Um, it isn't as dead as the Dead Sea. They do have some insect life called uh, like brine flies. And um, what are they eating? They eat algae that can okay. barely grow on the edges, and they smell awful when they die and decompose. But the big difference between the Dead Sea and the Great Salt Lake is that the Salt Lake has an ingress of fresh water. It does get some fresh water in there. The Dead Sea doesn't, so it is just festering. And uh, in case you're wondering why do we have these things like the Dead Sea and the Great Salt Lake, and there are others too, these are just the two most famous or the ones I'm most familiar with, it's that they used to be much bigger. Great Salt Lake used to be Lake Bonneville. It was the size of the whole state of Utah. And if you take any body of fresh water and shrink it down over millions of years or at least tens of thousands of years, everything that's dissolved in there gets concentrated in one place. Now, we live near Lake Michigan. If you can imagine Lake Michigan getting to be the size of you know Lake Zurich, um, which is a much smaller body of water, it would be a dead sea. So it's a, it's a fascinating experience. If you ever get to Israel, you have to go to the Dead Sea. It doesn't take long. They have changing rooms there. You don't have to spend a lot of money. You can get there from Jerusalem very easily or even on a cruise. That's what we did. We topped off the cruise ship and got on a bus. But it is an experience that you will never, you can't have that experience anywhere else except an isolation tank. It's almost exactly the same concentration of salts. You float in exactly the same way. And finally, we can't thank you enough for spending a little bit of time on your commute or at your house or on the treadmill with the Weekly Curio podcast. If you want to tell a friend, we are now officially, as of this week, in iTunes. So if you just search iTunes for Weekly uh, Curio, you'll find us there. Also links on collegeofcuriosity.com or freakshowtell.com. Copy and pasted, pick one, same show notes if you can't find the links we're talking about in Google. If you can, tell a friend. We'd like to double our listenership. <laughs> go, to, go to triple digits by week three. Uh, all that's left to say on behalf of Jeff and myself is thank you so much for listening. Finally, the solution to Jeff's puzzle. The puzzle begins. A man pushed his car through the streets of Atlantic City. After a couple of blocks, he stopped at a hotel and discovered he was bankrupt. What happened? Well... He was playing a game you might be familiar with. He was playing Monopoly. The game Monopoly is based on Atlantic City. If you go to Atlantic City, you will see all those streets. And of course, landing on a hotel, particularly on the boardwalk, is not a good thing for your bankroll. And so that's what happened. The man landed on boardwalk. He had the little car figurine, and he lost all his money. The Weekly Curio Podcast is a collaboration between Jeff Wagg of the College of Curiosities and Tom Britton of Freak Show and Tell. Check us out on the web at collegeofcuriosity.com or freakshowtell.com. See you next week.